Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Thanks for tuning in to Harvesting Happiness today for a healthy serving of consciously prepared brain food. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen, your host. For more than 13 years, I've been handcrafting these sound ideas for better well-being. Each week, I love spotlighting diverse thinkers and doers who are contemporary trendsetters and change agents devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. I invite you to listen up and change the way you think about human happiness. Our award-winning content is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Alrighty then, let's dive in. This episode offers psychosocial education designed to inspire and motivate our listeners. The information provided does not constitute a therapeutic relationship nor a substitute for professional mental health care. If you are experiencing a mental health crisis, call 911, go to your nearest emergency room, or for listeners in the United States, text 988 for the National Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining me on today's show, where you will learn about the Tribe Drive, examining human instincts, beliefs, and behaviors. My guest today is Dr. David Sampson. He is the author of Our Tribal Future, How to Channel Our Foundational Human Instincts into a Force for Good. David is an evolutionary anthropologist at University of Toronto. He has studied wild chimpanzees in their natural habitat and worked closely with hunter-gatherer communities. In his new book, Our Tribal Future, he explores the evolved instinct to belong to a tribe and how we can best channel this instinct into the 21st century. David is also part of the Circe Project, Cognitive Immunology Research Collaborative. Welcome, David. Thanks for joining us on the show today. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Lisa. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I it's a pleasure to have you, and I am really excited about the Circe series and how we can educate the public to be more mentally fit mm. and more discerning when it comes to how we think, how we behave, how we act, and how we interact with society. Talk a little bit about our tribal future. What is the science of tribalism? Yeah, so I think one of the best ways we can broach this topic is actually by trying to compress the vast amount of natural history that we're talking about here that set up the psychological and spiritual and, and mental components of what makes us happy. It's one of the focuses of your podcast. One of the best ways to get at this, I think, is to think of the 1.8 million years of evolutionary history in the context of a movie. So imagine human evolution was a 100-minute movie. This is your average length on, a, on, a, on any movie. And uh, in the first minute, something really interesting happens. We go from our Australopithecine ancestors that were living in trees, essentially. They were chimpanzees from the, the waist up. And we go from that moment to living in the savanna grasslands. And we start forming and living and dwelling within camps. So a camp, anthropologically speaking, is a group of individuals, about 20 to 30 adults that are working together for the shared project of survival. They're going out, they're hunting, they're gathering, they're harvesting, and they're bringing back these resources and basically sharing amongst the group. And they're, they're also alloparenting with each other, watching each other's kids. 
making sure that somebody's awake at night. And this really radically changed what it meant to be a human. And so this was the advent of our genus. This was one minute into the movie. And then something basically really interesting happens. 84 minutes later, it, you would need a David Attenborough to spice up the documentary because it would be pretty boring after that innovation. It'd be pretty, you know, natural history based. And at 84 minutes in the movie, something really fascinating happens. Groups start expanding out of their basic core home ranges, which are really small, 30 kilometers maybe in, in uh, diameter. And they start trading with other groups. So much so that you see in the archaeological record a signature of an us and a them, the kinds of tools that we have versus the kinds of tools that they have, right? And so probably around 300,000 years ago, which was 84 minutes in the movie, you had tribes evolve. And at this point, it might be worthwhile to define what this is. A tribe is an intersubjective belief network that signals coalitionary alliance to bootstrap trust amongst strangers. So it's a way to get beyond the face-to-face -face cognitive limitations of having to remember who to trust and knowing that if somebody's emitting the right team signals, I want to, to cooperate with them. And so here we have at 84 minutes, this, this adaptation, and it takes up until about a minute in the movie where things start going out of control. It's like a science fiction thriller in the last minute. Because in the last minute, we become the sole inheritors of the earth. We outcompete Neanderthals. And I think it's because of this tribe drive. We were mastering this symbolic way to co create these coalitions, right? And then with 30 seconds left, there is the advent of sedentary society. And we start domesticating animals. We start dwelling in one place as opposed to moving around. And I think this was one of the first moments in the human movie where we start really departing from what we had been doing for 99 and a half minutes before, which was dwelling in camps together, right? And so it takes up until this, the, the next 10,000 years, we have with the last half second in the movie, the, the most radical departure, and that is the invention of the nuclear family. And this was done by Levittown in the, the <laughs> 1950s. <laughs> and uh, this was never a pattern that we exhibited that our ancestors experienced for 99 and a half minutes of the movie. And then all of a sudden we create the McDonald's of social patterns with this very isolating environment. And that puts us in a state of massive mismatch, right? And then in the, in the last second, in the last millisecond, all the 5 billion people that are online start engaging in social media. And we wonder why there's this, all this tribal political tribalism and all this, competition and mismatch, it's because of the this, this moment in time where we started diverging radically from how the movie played out for most of it. That is fascinating. And when you talk about like the 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 calls, right, that 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 allows mm -hmm. you to recognize yourself in the other, it is mm -hmm. so uh reminiscent of what's going on right now. Yeah, totally. And uh, I think this this concept of evolutionary mismatch, it's something I, I focus on in the book, especially in chapter two. It's the idea that we're evolved for how things were, not how things are. So let me give a, a, a crisp example here from the animal kingdom. So there is the African, South African jewel beetle. And the beetle is in a particularly precarious state right now 
because the males are attracted to, they find sexy, these big pits in the wings of their mates. They're like these little brown oval pits. They reflect light. And right now there's been a massive reduction in the population sizes because they're being tricked by beer bottles that have bigger, sexier pits. So these males will go, there'll be five or six of them trying to mate with a beer bottle instead of an actual partner. Poor babies. <laughs> there's been, yeah, no babies, right? So this is a classic example of how when a species is confronted with signals that hijack it in its system, it can be extremely wellness reducing and maybe even arguably happiness reducing for that species. This is fascinating. I was listening to a piece the other day on PRX about light pollution and mm. how um, through the industrial revolution moving forward, how the massive amounts of light have actually damaged and reduced certain species like yeah. frogs because frogs well, only call in complete darkness. Oh, yeah. No, not only that. So this is actually my wheelhouse. I've, I've studied circadian rhythms. <laughs> and sleep in in um, many different primate species and small scale societies. So the circadian rhythm, it's this crucial cue from light and temperature in the environment, and it probably predates even sleep. So as it, just think of it this way, what a circadian rhythm is trying to do is it's trying to basically give an individual predictive power in its environment. It's trying to say, be active now and be asleep now, right? And what we've done is we've totally thrown a wrench in this fundamental biological system because we have totally temperature regulated rooms. I imagine you have AC right now on in your, in your room. I certainly do. Amen to that. Amen <laughs> to that, right? Cause it's sweltering right now. <laughs> it's sweltering. Uh, and we have these blue wave emitting lights that we can turn on anytime in 24 hours. And so this is, I'm, I'm happy you brought this up because this is another state where humans are in, a, in an evolutionary mismatch because what we're doing is we're, we're basically throwing these really poor, crappy cues on our entire neuroendocrine system at, say, 10, 11 at night. We're watching these big screen TVs, LCD screen TVs, or looking at a computer screen, and it's inhibiting our, our capacity to make melatonin. Melatonin is the principal sleep-wake regulation hormone, and so it's, again, a state of mismatch that we've thrown ourselves in based on our, our evolved physiology. So that's a, that's a wonderful example, Lisa. I'm, brought, I'm glad you brought that up. Well, and what you say makes me think about how technology both contributes towards the advancement of society, and then we're shooting ourselves mm -hmm. in the foot because yeah. by these circadian rhythms being disrupted in the human world and the rest of the animal kingdom, yeah. it also impairs our ability to function, our, our executive functioning, how we mm -hmm. process, how we make decisions, how we go out in the world and behave. Yeah, no, totally. And I think bringing this back to our, our proposed idea here of social mismatch, yeah. you can start to see the evidence in the same way that you see that people are having sleep disorders. The Surgeon General just had an advisory talking about social isolation. I don't know if you saw this. this was I did. Like it was yeah. great. And it his, is actually through his own great. experience, right? His own lived experience served as the model for this, which is phenomenal. Yeah, it's heroic. I'm I'm actually really glad that that was that was done because the stats are pretty terrifying right now when it comes to social isolation and how damaging it is. So for adolescents. Two thirds are saying they're overwhelmingly anxious right now. Over 50% say they regularly feel hopeless most of the time. 
40% of college students are reporting they're too depressed to function most days, and 10% have had suicidal ideation in the past year. And these rates have doubled since 2009. So this is like, this is very, very serious. And for adolescents, it's one thing because you're, you're, you have a developing and growing mind. In adults, it's proving to be absolutely deadly. So loneliness is predictive of increased broad-based morbidity, mortality. It makes your brain harder to change and grow through neuroplasticity. It predicts drug use, suicide. It negatively influences your sleep. And so Sarah Rose Cavanaugh actually said in 2019 in her book, she said, quote, loneliness is tied to being more likely to die at any time of any cause at any phase of life, end Oof. quote. And so like when we talk about mismatch, that's one of the things is like our ancestors evolved in a much more tight social network. And I think that's this is one of the ways that we can start harvesting happiness is start thinking about creating intentional proximity and intentional community in our own lives. It's interesting that you talk about uh, this in the context of uh, emotional and physical well-being. And I'm also thinking about you know, our tribal future, right? The desire mm-hmm. to be connected, right? Like mm-hmm. we humans are driven and long for connection and belonging. And I would imagine that there's research that supports that part of this fractured society where people are joining these tribal cultures yeah. in, in on the internet, right? Yep. These tribal internet groups, native tribes, yeah. Right, is yep. to try totally. and establish on some level, fill that void of connection. Absolutely. And it's perhaps not the best strategy in so much that what's going on is you're seeing these, basically the political tribalism that we're experiencing right now. I think it has a lot to do with this. I think of political tribalism as sort of weaponizing the tribe drive. Because when I think of, I I think of the, I'll actually give an example from my classroom. I have a exercise in my classroom where the students rank their identities. And the way you do this in, in social and psychological um, studies is by asking them what groups they like identifying with. What groups are you proud to belong to? And what I was trying to get them to do was to create a list, rank it by order of which you're most proud, you know, your classic Likert scale, which are you most proud to belong to? And they'll rank, you know, say half a dozen groups. And then I'm having them wait and, and look at each one is it subtribal? Is it a face-to-face group, right? Is it a group that you actually know people face-to-face or is it a post-tribal, is it a, a ultra-tribal group where it's a group in the abstract that is filled with strangers? So for example, it would be the difference between identifying with your community church and the Roman Catholic church, right? One is a tribe, one is an intersubjective belief network, and one's an actual physical group. And the, the scary thing, Lisa, that I discovered is so, so many of these students were coming back. And when I had them look at the ratio, the proportion of groups that they had that were face-to-face versus totally tribal, it was some students were coming back with all the groups they identify with were tribal groups. They didn't have any face-to-face groups. And wow. so the challenge I have for them and the challenge I have for your listeners is to think about your groups ex- explicitly and try and weight them and give a priority importance to the ones that are actually face-to-face with other human beings, because that's where we know human beings scientifically. It's very robust that when you have strong social networks, it's going to help on a lot of different dimensions in terms of wellness and happiness. 
This is amazing what you have your students do. And I would imagine when you talk about this with them and they were like, well, wait a second, I really don't have these connected social relationships that you're talking about. Are you getting feedback that they're reevaluating and shifting? Yeah, once totally. they're aware. Yes. And so that's that's one of the most crucial components of this. And it's why we're having these kinds of conversations yeah. together is the only way to combat an instinct right? From compelling you to one end or another is to bring it to the level of awareness that you're consciously aware of it so that you can gain some purchase of of it. And it's not totally controlling you. You have some control over it. And what I've found is that these students are, are definitely gaining more purchase over their environment because they are understanding it on a conscious level, which I think is crucial. It's amazing. We're going to need to take a break. And when we come back, we will continue the conversation with Dr. David Sampson to learn more about David and his work and his book, Our Tribal Future, How to Channel Our Foundational Human Instincts into a Force for Good. Please go to davidrsampson.com. On Twitter, well, formerly known as Twitter, now it's X, (laughs) go to at Primal Primate and on Instagram, Primal Primatologist and on Substack, the Tribe Drive Newsletter. Here comes that pause. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. Just a minute here. Before we take that break, let's talk about the craziness of everyday life and its impact on our hair. Thinning hair is different for everyone, so a one-size-fits-all approach to hair growth just doesn't cut it. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist-recommended hair growth supplement with over 1 million people seeing thicker, stronger, faster-growing hair with less shedding. Nutrafol has five formulas that are tailored to your hair's needs to help you achieve visibly thicker, stronger, faster-growing hair in three to six months. Nutrafol supports healthy hair growth from within by targeting the root causes of thinning from within, stress, hormones, environment, nutrition, lifestyle, and metabolism. Take their three-minute hair wellness quiz for a personalized plan that targets better hair growth through a whole-body health approach. Determine the root causes that keep you from reaching your hair potential by analyzing lifestyle, biology, hair history, and environmental triggers. Each physician-formulated product is drug-free and made with high-quality ingredients that are recommended by more than 4,500 doctors and hairstylists nationwide. What I love most about Nutrafol is that in addition to thicker and stronger hair, the ingredients have stopped excessive shedding while helping to improve my sleep, stress response, and those pesky menopause symptoms, including hot flashes. No matter your lifestyle or stage of life, Nutrafol is here to help you keep growing and to help make life a little less hectic with easy online purchasing, no prescriptions or doctor visits required. Free shipping and automated deliveries ensure you'll never miss a day. Join me and more than a million others who are committed to keep growing with Nutrafol. Start your hair growth journey today by taking Nutrafol's hair wellness quiz and get your personalized hair plan today. For a limited time, Nutrafol is offering our listeners $10 off your first month subscription and free shipping at Nutrafol.com quiz when you enter the promo code HARVESTING. Take the quiz and get started on reaching your hair wellness goals with Nutrafol today. Nutrafol.com spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L dot com slash quiz promo code harvesting. That's Nutrafol.com slash quiz promo code harvesting. Now let's take that pause. Research tells us that happiness is good for our health. Happy people live longer, are more productive and make better partners, parents and professionals. 
Want more sound ideas for better well-being? Check out our new bonus edition content, More Mental Fitness by Harvesting Happiness, available exclusively on Medium and Substack. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one, and at times we all need a little support. To learn more about lifestyle management and mental fitness consulting services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. And we're back continuing the conversation with Dr. David Sampson. We're talking about Tribe Drive, examining human instincts, beliefs, and behaviors. Let's get back to it. So, David, let's move the conversation towards looking at our tribal future. And you write about something called camp crafting. Yeah. So this is the idea that any degree in which we can shift towards a more socially connected network is likely going to be one that allows us to thrive and increase our wellness. I call this the principle of intentional proximity. It's fighting that mismatch, right? So fighting that social drift, the kinds of forces that our society it basically incentivizes for us to disconnect with people. So in our standard growth and development pattern, we end up going to college and potentially finding a pair bond or a mate, <laughs> moving off to wherever we can find that job. And what it's doing is it's dislocating us from the network by which we grew. And so the the incentives are for us to become a disconnected society as opposed to a connected society. And what we're seeing is that there are lots of reasons to kind of fight for that intentional proximity with your social group. So reason of social connection improves your, your health is, is what we uh, talked about in the last yes. segment. Reason number two, social connection strengthens. It can actually strengthen your romantic relationship. There's this phenomena called cocooning, where you have, instead of just single people isolating, you have a, a pair bond isolating. And remember, we evolved in these camps that had lots of people. That was sort of the nuclear camp was the basic social structure. And so what we're doing is we're putting this inordinate amount of stress and pressure on one human being to be an entire camp. It's supposed to be like, you're supposed to trying to Boy, get calories it's exhausting together. thinking about it. It's, it's exhausting. <laughs> Being right? the everything. Yeah. You have to be everything to be a quote unquote good mate, in which case for 99% of human evolution, you relied on a lot of adults for those roles. So it's really not, it's really not fair to that person. It's not fair to you. It's not fair to them. And we also know that couples typically are much stronger when they have witnesses to their relationship it's kind of like instead of, you 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 kind of get performative and you be you present your best self in the relationship and that's very good for the relationship overall reason 3 social connection improves child development so allo parenting the studies looking at allo parenting this is defined as when there are parents besides the genetic parents that have some sort of influence and some sort of role in rearing the child these children are less anxious they have better attachments they have better theory of mind, meaning they can see and understand people's point of view to a higher degree. Their cognitive development is better. And they actually, have, they've measured in these fMRIs, they've measured um, the size of the amygdala. And this is like your fear response system. Amygdalas are smaller in children that have more alloparents. And this is sort of fundamental to the, to the human condition. And when you rear children in isolation, it has a lot of bad things that can associate to their growth and development. 
Reason four, social connection reduces consumption. It improves your quality of life. You can get a lot more bang for your buck if you co-locate or cohabitate with a group of people. Typically, driving is 30% less. You spend 40% less on utilities. It's kind of the philosophy that, you know, you don't need five hammers. You only need one hammer distributed and shared amongst the group, right? So you can share you can share resources in that kind of way. And it's very much like central place provisioning, like our ancestors did. And then social connection, reason number five, social connection boosts odds of personal success. So you don't have to be the master of all things because you can leverage people's individual skill sets. They can help you out. Like if you have a buddy who's a project manager, you don't need to know how to project manage because they can help you with that skill set. And then the social resources involved around that as well, that social capital allows you as an individual in the group to attain their goals. And reason number six, the most, I think maybe the most important, especially for the listeners of the happiness, um, the harvesting happiness podcast is that people in social groups like this have greater sense of meaning and purpose. It's not all about the I it's about what you are also contributing to your identity group, your in group. And so there's all these reasons and we can actually see it in some really cool classic examples. Are you familiar at all with the Rosetto mystery? I am not. And I'm so curious. Yeah. A good mystery is always fun. So I came across this with Malcolm Gladwell's book outliers. And he was just, the whole book is about why do certain types of phenomena occur at such extremes? And he brought in a social example, which I totally love because it's an example that gets us to this concept of evolutionary mismatch and being synchronized or desynchronized. And Rosetto is a town and it has primarily a history of Italian immigration. And um, basically this doctor by the name of Stuart Wolf was invited to come to a conference in the 1950s. He went to the town of Rosetta, about 1,500 people. This will be important later. He went to this town and the doctors there, the local doctors were making some pretty radical claims. Like, yeah, we don't have any hypertension here. We don't have any instances of high blood pressure. We don't have any of these things, these uh, non-communicable diseases that are cropping up everywhere in the 1950s in the US. It's sort of an epidemic of heart disease and all this stuff. And they were finding the Rosettans were dying of old age. And on top of that, they had almost non-existent crime. They had almost non-existent suicide. And uh, there, there was just all these different little outliers cropping around that was confounded people. And so Stuart Wolf set up a, a, a 10 years of research in this environment. First, he thought maybe it's the gene. So maybe if we find Rosettans elsewhere that have immigrated to other towns, maybe we'll discover that they're sort of immune. So we'll, we'll check that out. That wasn't the case. Rosetta's not living in Rosetta. We're still suffering from all the other things that everybody else was suffering from. It wasn't geography because they started looking at towns that were just adjacent to Rosetta, like right next door, like no difference in the water, right? Like, the, like what's going on in the water hypothesis. And they found that these other towns, they were suffering from the same things. It wasn't diet or exercise. They did. They barely exercise. And because they were Italian immigrants, they ate these carb loaded, fat loaded diets. So what they found was it was the, the answer to the Rosetta mystery was actually the level of social integration. This town was at this sweet spot. When we talk about town sizes or group sizes, there's the Dunbar's value. So Humans are really good in groups between 30 and 50, likely because we evolved in camps. 
We're really good at 150 because that's sort of the scaling limit of how many face-to-face relationships we can have. And then 1,500 is your typical tribe size in small-scale societies. And so we found that in Rosetta, they didn't change between 1,500 and 1,800 for like 50 years. So they had this sweet spot in sort of how big the town was. There was 22 civic organizations for both men and women. So they had this deep sort of like uh, commitment to the the community and to each other. They were, of course, they had the same tribal signals because they were all the 77% were of the Roman Catholic religion. So their religious rituals, their religious shaman, who was their, their Catholic priest, prominent member of the community. And they performed these rituals where they exercised their social norms and their sacred values every week together. And this is definitely one of the ways to export sense, a sense of cohesion amongst a group. 24% were living with a spouse, 50, 55% had lived there their entire lives, 70% had children living with the parents. So they had intergenerational living. And a vast majority said when they had problems, they wouldn't go to the state, they would go to their family to solve them. So again, this is just a, a beautiful example of how understanding our natural history in, in human evolution gives us sort of a key to the recipe to how to find environments that help us thrive in the 21st century. This is fascinating. I want to go back to something you said about the kids um, when they're raised in communities where there is there are more parental figures than just the, yeah. the, the parents. Because yeah. um, it, it struck me that what you have are you're building more curious people. When you have mm-hmm. more people who are influence, influencing a child's development, Kids become more curious, more mm-hmm. resilient, better better problem solvers, better learners because they're getting influences from multiple sources. Mm-hmm. And I think when we're talking about mental immunity, to kind of segue there, because we're almost out of time, yeah. if we're looking to build better thinkers or more fit thinkers, what you're talking about, that this tribal network is mm-hmm. important for us to reevaluate the kinds of tribes that we want to belong to. Oh, that's absolutely right, Lisa. We want to belong to the kinds of tribes that are communities of inquiry, right? We want to belong to the kinds of intersubjective belief networks that aren't 100% sure of what reality is. There's some level of perhaps we can change our ideas. Perhaps we can be malleable when new evidence comes into play. And that, of course, is one of the, the goals and the missions of Cersei and Andy Norman's work with mental immunity that I really look forward to discussing. And I think the point of Cersei is to create um, flexible, open-minded, less judgmental humans mm-hmm. that can work together for the greater good, to, to, to seek more of where the Venn diagram overlaps mm-hmm. than, than our differences. Absolutely. And we'll need to figure out how what the right tribal signals are and the right sacred values for our tribe. We'll need to figure out what those are so that we can, in concert, march towards that. You write for Circe and participate in Circe uh, regarding tribalism vaccination. And I would love to kind of dangle that before we close in front of our listeners. Yeah. So this idea is that essentially what we have right now at scale in society is another state of sort of tribal mismatch where um, basically our tribe drive is being 
politicized and weaponized in a way that's harming our capacity to be able to judge good ideas from bad ideas. And so that's going to be the the thrust of our conversation when we talk about the tribe drive and the tribalism vaccine. And with that, to learn more, jump on over to Substack, where we have created a joint venture between Harvesting Happiness and Circe, Cognitive Immunology Research Collaborative, to carry on the conversation with my guest today, Dr. David Sampson. We're talking about his book, Our Tribal Future, How to Channel Our Foundational Human Instincts into a Force for Good. To learn more, please visit davidrsampson.com. On Twitter or X, formerly known as Twitter or whatnot, go to at Primal Primate on Instagram at Primal Primatologist. And on David's Substack, you can find him at the Tribe Drive newsletter. David, thanks a million for being with me today. Oh, my pleasure, Lisa. Anytime. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness today. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen on behalf of my guest, Dr. David Sampson, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Please go out and rock your day and remember to be kind to one another. Want to take a deeper dive into sound ideas for better well-being? Check out our new bonus edition content, More Mental Fitness by Harvesting Happiness, available exclusively on Medium and Substack. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime, anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes from wherever you get your podcasts. Connect with and follow us on most social media channels. To learn more about lifestyle management and mental fitness consulting services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Harvesting Happiness and More Mental Fitness are produced by me, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, Andrea Mengeli, Robin Boyd, Andrea Daly, and the awesome team at Podfly Productions, including Eric Begay, Kimberly Beck, and Alec Guess, in collaboration with TogiNet Radio, KBUU, RadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.